Uh, there should be one in a seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that, take that. That's our gift to you. We love giving those away. If you know someone who needs a Bible and doesn't have one, take that. Give it to that person. Um, if you are using the seatback Bibles, you're looking for page 840, 841, somewhere in that range, uh, should be Mark chapter 6. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for a while now. Um, and as we have studied these first five and a half or so chapters of Mark, uh, only twice, and it's only going to be twice in the book of Mark, where the stories, the accounts being given don't center around Jesus. There's only two times in Mark. At the very beginning, Mark's gospel starts up talking about this one who's called John the Baptist, that he prepares the way, that he is sent ahead of Jesus to preach repentance, to preach that the kingdom of God is coming, that someone greater than he is coming. Um, and then the second time where the story is not about Jesus is this morning's passage, and it's once again about John the Baptist. Um, his story, his life is important to what Mark is teaching and showing us about who Jesus is. And so... Um, this is a story, this is the account uh, that helps us and asks us to decide what we think about who Jesus is. Even though he is not the main focus of the passage this morning, it still all comes back to Jesus. And we have to decide what we think about Jesus, what we think about the Bible, about God himself, and decide how are we going to respond to these things. Um, the last time we heard from John the Baptist, way back in chapter 2, uh, we know that he was arrested. Um, and that's kind of where it was left at. John was arrested, his ministry was over, and Jesus' ministry was beginning. And that's the last we heard of John the Baptist until this morning, and we're going to see what happened to John the Baptist. So that's the plan for today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read and jump in. So please uh, pray with me. God, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being a God that uh, is awesome and good. Thank you for being a God who is worth <laughs> worshiping and celebrating. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather together to celebrate you, to, uh, to worship you. Lord, as we open your word, as we uh, study your word, God, I pray that, um, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us, um, hearts that are open to receive uh, whatever it is you have for us this morning, God. Uh, we know that this is your word. It is living and active. It is real. It makes sense. It applies to us today. And there is a reason we are in this text this morning in this church. And so, God, I pray that uh, whatever those reasons is, whatever reasons you have for us doing this today, uh, Lord, that you make those crystal clear to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you remove any distractions, any reasons why we wouldn't focus on your truth this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. Um, we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Before we jump in, I want to thank, i got a lot of people to thank. Um, so yesterday morning we had men's breakfast um, where we had churches, uh, we had four different churches represented. We ate food, uh, we sang, we heard uh, the word taught, and it was a great morning. If you were with us, thank you for coming, um, but especially for the guys who came early, who helped cook, who helped set up, um, uh, Jim Bailey, uh, MJ, uh, Mike, Max, uh, there was a bunch of guys, and we literally had too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, it was uh, awesome. Thank you guys, everybody, for helping set up, for making that happen. If you came, thank you for being there to, to, worship, uh, to worship with us and to have that morning together. And then again, um, for those of you guys who got here, you got in here hopefully without slipping and falling, especially around the building, or you parked and didn't fall. Um, that's because a bunch of guys came this morning uh, to shovel. Jeff and Reed and Juan all came early this morning to shovel uh, and to salt the parking lot and the sidewalk. So thank you guys for doing that. Thank you for giving up your time this morning. Very much appreciated. Yeah. 
Thank you very much. All right, so we're going to jump in, uh, and we're going to read a nice long chunk of Scripture, and then we'll go back and kind of break it down. So we're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to marry to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And, he came in, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So what we have here is kind of a flashback of what's going on. So uh, at this point, we see that Jesus' fame has been spreading, right? Between the things Jesus himself has done and now the spreading of the message, right? We looked last week, we left off last week where Jesus sent out the 12 disciples two by two to go to perform miracles, to preach the word, um, and they spread out. And so because of that, between what Jesus was doing and the disciples going out and preaching and doing miracles, Jesus' fame is spreading. Word is going out about Jesus. The disciples taught and did these works, not in their own power, but by the power in the name of Jesus. And so it was his name that spread, and it spread all the way to King Herod. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. They started to say, well, this Jesus, who is this? People trying to understand who he was and said, some say that John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Some say Elijah. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. He is um, kind of the poster boy for what an Old Testament prophet was. He um, has a lot of great, if you go back um, into and look in First and Second Samuel, he's in there. Um, he prays and God rains down fire and he ends up taking out a bunch of uh, false prophets. And um, God does a lot of great, amazing things through Elijah. He prays and there's no rain for years and then he prays and it just monsoons. Um, Elijah is the Old Testament prophet, like I said, poster boy. Uh, and one of the most famous, if not the most famous, of prophets. And so some say Elijah has been brought back from the dead. Others say that this Jesus is just, he's not necessarily Elijah, but he's like one of those prophets. He's got that kind of same feel to him. All of these ways of looking at Jesus, all of these ways of talking about him, clearly show he is highly respected. These are great compliments to pay to someone. It would be really nice if he got equated with one of these names. It would be a nice way of talking and complimenting someone who isn't God in the flesh. Because, yes, Jesus is a prophet in that he speaks the word of God, but he is so much more than that. He is God himself. 
And so to leave him in the same category as John the Baptist or as Elijah is to downgrade, is to insult, is really to blaspheme who Jesus is, or at the very least, completely misunderstand who he is. See, having a high opinion of who Jesus is is not the same as having faith in who Jesus is. To say he is just a prophet, or even, as many people talk about him today, to say he is a great example of human morality, to say he is the greatest person to ever live, he was a wise teacher. While those are nice things to say, it is completely missing the mark and does not necessarily bring you closer to faith in Jesus. Just because you are familiar with someone doesn't mean you are family. And even when it comes to Jesus, even being family doesn't mean you're family when it comes to Jesus, right? We've seen a couple of times, we've already talked about it, that Jesus' own family thought he had lost his mind and wanted to get him away from the crowd because they didn't like what was going on and what he was saying and doing. They didn't even believe and understand. His own family wanted to get him away from the crowds. The town he grew up in rejected him because they were familiar with him, but they didn't have faith in him as the Messiah and Son of God. Knowing facts and figures about a subject, about a person, doesn't mean you know the person. Just because you grew up in church, just because your family went to church, your parents are saved, because you've heard a bunch of Bible stories, just because you keep K-Love or Moody Radio on in the car, that doesn't make you a Christian. Head knowledge and experiences don't make you a Christian. They do not save you. The only way to truly be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, the only thing that saves you is Jesus. Faith in Jesus, in his perfect life, which led to his painful death in which he paid the penalty we deserve for our sin in our place, and his glorious resurrection in which he exercises his power and authority over sin and death and hell. Faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only thing that saves you. The most important decision you will ever make in your entire life is what you decide about who Jesus is. We've seen in the last chapter that the people continuously are missing the mark on who Jesus was. Even with these ideas of him as a prophet is missing the point. And then we see in verse 16, King Herod speaks. After hearing the stories, after hearing the accounts of what Jesus has been doing, what the people had to say, he starts to have this flashback. Who Jesus is and what he has done reminds Herod of John the Baptist, who we learn from this was beheaded at the command of Herod. Hello. So let's talk about Herod a little bit. I want to give you a brief family history because the entire family that Herod comes from is really twisted and corrupt. I want to give a brief breakdown because you may, if you have some Bible knowledge, you've heard the name Herod. Um, and when it comes to the New Testament, Herod could be any one of four different guys. Okay, So I want to kind of try and give us a little bit of an idea of who we're talking about here. Um, so we have Herod the Great. He is the kind of the grandfather. He's the, the patriarch of the whole family. Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that when you go to Matthew 2, and it says that King Herod wanted to have all the babies killed because the wise men came and told him that this new king was born. That's Herod the Great, okay? Um, Herod the Great has ten wives. They give him a mix of sons and daughters. When Herod the Great dies, his kingdom is broken down, is separated in between his four sons. Each of his sons kind of gets a chunk of the kingdom. One of those sons is Herod Antipas. That's the Herod we're talking about this morning. 
So he's in charge of a large section of Galilee and some surrounding areas at this time. And so um, he's going to be in charge when Jesus dies, right? So if you go to Acts 4 and Peter is preaching the gospel and he says that Herod and Pontius Pilate were ones in authority when Jesus died, they allowed him to be crucified. That Herod is Herod Antipas. That's this Herod, okay? What we know about him is he was a lover of luxury, as most kings are. He loved great, massive architecture. He had these cities. He had various cities built uh, over the area that he oversaw, and he had these massive, huge architectural uh, buildings made in these cities because he just loved that style of art. Um, on the flip side, he was also very violent, very cunning, and very malicious. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, calls him that fox. He was sneaky. He was crafty. He was like a fox. So here's where things get really messy. It says John is thrown in prison. He's thrown in prison because he told Herod it was not lawful for Herod to marry his brother's wife. You see this in verses 17 and 18. So Herod convinces a woman named Herodias to leave and divorce Herod's brother, who she was married to. At the same time, Herod was married to a woman as well, and he just kicks her to the curb. Here's where it gets real tricky. Herodias, Herod's wife, is the daughter of Herod Antipas's half-brother, which, who, incidentally, Herod the Great had his son killed, okay? This family is real twisted. Herodias, Herod's wife, is his niece. He had an adulterous, incestuous relationship with his brother's wife, who happened to be his niece. Yeah. Okay, and that's, I just wanted to focus on even just that line of the tree because this tree is all twisted amongst itself. So with that going on, of course, someone like John the Baptist is going to say something. He's going to say, this isn't right. Now on the flip side, there's a lot of logical reasons for John to just keep his mouth shut. This family, the Herodian family, is so screwed up. There is so much generational sin. One could look at it and say, what's it going to matter? If, even if Herod does listen to John, what's that going to change? That's a drop in the bucket. But also, the bigger point is that Herod is the king. He is powerful and corrupt and arrogant and, as we see, could have John killed. But John the Baptist was a prophet, one who speaks the word of God. When God gives you something to say, it is your responsibility to say it regardless of the situation. Regardless of how it will be received, we are called to share truth. You don't have to specifically be a prophet for that to apply to you. If you are a Christian, you are called to share truth. That still holds today with the relationships we are in. Now, that doesn't mean you just say whatever you want and say, it's truth, deal with it. Right? We're told that we are to share truth in love. Right? There's a way to, especially when you have a relationship with someone, there's a way to share truth, to confront someone according to Scripture in a way that is uh, encouraging, in a way that is looking to build them up and not just tear them down. But nevertheless, we are called to share truth. And sometimes that truth is hard to share, but we're called to do it anyways. So John tells Herod, it is not right for what you are doing. It is unlawful. It is sinful. And Herodias hates John for it hates John and wants to put him to death, but she can't immediately get what she wants. So Herod, out of fear for John's life, 
and to appease his wife, locks up John. But it says in verse 20 that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod feared John, knowing he was righteous and holy, and so Herod locked him up to try and keep him safe, to try and compromise and appease his wife. There is a fear in Herod of who John is, his righteousness, his holy. He is a man of conviction, and it made Herod afraid because Herod was the opposite of any of those things. It says, when John spoke, it perplexed Herod greatly, but he listened gladly. John preached truth. He preached the word of God, and it was perplexing to Herod. It was like a foreign way of thinking for Herod, because nothing about his life, nothing about his family, his status, his way of living was in line with what John was telling him as he preached truth. Herod and the truth that John was preaching, John himself, these two men are at complete polar opposites of one another. Even though what John preaches is meant to convict and rebuke Herod, Herod can't help but listen. But that's as much as he does. He listens. He's perplexed, may even be a little offended, but he still listens. But that's as far as he'll go. Again, this comes back to the difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. See, you can study the Bible. You can listen to hours and hours of sermons. You can be in a community group, which launched this week, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Make sure you jump in if you haven't already. But if there is no life change, if there is no actual belief, no faith, no action to what you say that you believe, you are no better off than someone like Herod. If all you're doing is listening and not putting that into action, you are no better off than someone like Herod. If you refuse to acknowledge the areas of your life where sin is present, where sin is being fed and encouraged by your actions, you're wasting your time. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of scripture is good for us. Even the genealogies that make you go to sleep, even the list of laws in Leviticus is good for you, is valuable. It matters still today. But for any of it to matter, for any of it to apply, we cannot be content with a passive listening or a distracted interest. Do not be content in just knowing facts and figures. Because if your theology, your belief in God does not affect your life, you have missed or lost sight of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, one of the things I've learned in the last year and a half, really, when it comes to sermon prep and getting ready to, to preach a sermon, is part of it is a large part of it is figuring out what to say, what to come up here and actually put in our notes. What I've learned, especially in the last year and a half, is sermon prep has a lot to do with what not to say, right? Um, the things that end up on the cutting room floor, as they say, or the things that get edited out. Um, last week, uh, when I preached, I had a point in my sermon that, uh, in an early draft of my sermon, that I wanted to share, and it ended up just not making the final draft. Okay, um, that happens sometimes. It is what it is. As we get, as I was studying this week, the same phrase, the same idea, kept popping in my mind, um, and so clearly it needed to make it back into this sermon. Um, so I have a point that I want to make, and I will explain it if it makes you uncomfortable. 
Christians, people, should have a holy discontentment about what we know about God. You should have a holy discontentment about what you know about God. Let me explain what that means. Wherever you are in your walk, wherever you are in your faith, you should want more of him, and you should want to be more mature. If you are not a Christian, if you don't believe, if you're still figuring out and questioning, there is a part of you, that part that is trying to figure out who Jesus is, that part who is questioning, that part who is seeking and searching. There's a part of you that is looking to be made whole, to be made full, to be satisfied. And the only way that's going to happen is in Jesus. There is a longing for you, for a relationship with your creator. He put it there on purpose. And you will search for satisfaction. You will search for wholeness anywhere and everywhere else. And every time you do, it will leave you lacking and longing until you realize it is the love of God in Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection that will make you whole. If you are a Christian, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That should make you want more. And what is great is there is always more to be had. There is always more and more growing as we are made more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. So do not settle for where you are in your relationship with God. Amen and amen for where God has called you out of and for the growth that he has done in your life and the, the steps you have taken and the maturity you have gotten. Amen. Celebrate where you are. But don't ever stop and be content in where you are because God has more for you. God has more to reveal about you. God has more of himself to, for you to know. There is more to learn, more to mine out of scripture, more to mine out of just your relationship with God. Do not settle because there is more of God to be had. Okay? Celebrate where you are. Amen. Yes, God has pulled me out of stuff. God has grown me. God has matured me. But I know there's more maturing to happen. There's more growth. There's more knowledge. There's more insight. There's more that can grow, that can happen here. And I want more of that. I know he is good. I know who he is. I know the things he's revealed him about himself to me. And I want more of that. So that's what I mean by having a holy discontent. Does that make sense? Okay. Herod refused to truly listen to what John was telling him, to put into practice the things John was saying. And so John stayed in jail. And the whole time John is sitting in jail, Herodias is waiting and planning and plotting, looking for an opportunity to have this man killed. And the same is true about Satan. He is patient. He will wait. He will watch. He will pay attention and plot until the time is right and he has the chance to bring you down. If you are a Christian, especially if you are a Christian actively struggling against any sin, Satan is paying attention. And the day you say, you know what, I'm done fighting, I'm done struggling, I think I got this beaten, that's the day he's going to attack. You don't get to take a day off from battling against sin. You don't get to take a day off from trying to pursue God and stay away from Satan. You don't get to take a day off because that day off you take, Satan will attack. Herodias waited. She waited until she had an opportunity, and that opportunity eventually presents itself. We see in verse 21. Herod throws himself a huge party. 
all the big leaders and authority figures, they come, and there Herodias has her daughter come in and dance for the men. doesn't tell us, but we could probably assume what kind of dance this young girl does to make the king say, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. Which, that statement, even up to half my kingdom, it's more about Herod trying to say, I'll give you whatever you want. Like, it's a, it's a very just generous um, exaggeration. Because while Herod might be king, the Romans are in charge. Herod is a puppet. Herod is a low-level king. The Romans are really in charge. And he's not getting away with just handing over half his kingdom. That's not an actual thing that he even has the power to do. And again, we see the weird, twisted Herodian family that's going on here as this girl does this dance for her stepfather. And so he makes this offer, this promise in front of all these people. And so the girl then goes back to her mother and says to figure out what it is that she should ask for. And now finally, the moment has come. Herodias tells her daughter, go and tell Herod that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Look at verse 25. She came in immediately with haste to the king. This was not a drawn-out brainstorm session, right? The, the girl didn't go back to her mother and like, you know, I'm really wanting a jet ski. What do you think about me asking for a jet ski? Or how about a hot tub? Herod's got some pull. I'm going to ask for unlimited tacos for the rest of my life. Right? This is not like, what should we ask for? We have this great golden ticket. No, Herodias knew exactly what she was doing. She orchestrated this whole thing. And as soon as the girl comes back and asks, she immediately says, go tell him you want John the Baptist's head. And so the girl goes in and she goes up to Herod. And even the way this sentence is written, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I want, to give, I want you to give me at once immediately. And she waits and waits until she finally drops the bomb, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because he knew he just put himself into a bind. Because of his oaths, because of what he said in front of all these authority figures, because at that time, if you're going to show weakness, that means they're going to attack. Or they're going to go ahead to Rome. They're going to go above your head and tell the Romans that you're not fit to be king anymore, and he's getting the boot. He realizes he's stuck, and he can't break his word to her. Herod's own ego and his big mouth and his own high view of himself has gotten the better of him. And he does something he doesn't really want to do, right? At this point, we don't know how long John was in jail, but at this point, he could have killed John at any time. But because of his position, because of his power, he does this anyway. And so immediately, our key word for Mark, John the Baptist's head was delivered on a platter, given to the young girl. The girl takes it to her mother. Herodias has finally gotten her victory over John. When news of this gets out, we don't know how long it took, but we assume with John being in jail, the disciples were checking in on him as best they could, his disciples. The followers of John come, get his body, and they lay it in a tomb. So ends the life and ministry of John the Baptist. As I said before, there's only two times in the book of Mark where Jesus is not the main focus. Both of them have to do with John the Baptist. John's whole ministry, the whole point of his ministry is to be the front runner, is to be the one who sets the table, who gets things ready for the arrival of Jesus. And if we put John's life and ministry 
we put Jesus's life and ministry side by side, you start to see a lot of similarities between the two. John not only goes ahead of Jesus in what he preaches, but in how he lives and ultimately how he dies. Both men are led and powered by the Holy Spirit. We know from another gospel account that while John was still in his mother's womb, he had the Holy Spirit in him. Both men are led and powered by the Holy Spirit. Both were set apart, holy, righteous. They spoke the word of God. They preached truth. Literally, at times, when Jesus starts off, they're preaching the exact same message. John was preaching, repent, turn from your sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. One greater than me is coming. Jesus preached, repent, turn from your sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm that greater one. Something better is coming. Run from your sins, turn in the opposite direction, that's what it means to repent, and run toward God. Both of these men are arrested under bogus charges. They're both made out to be some kind of political effect, threat. In uh, There's a historian named Josephus who says that basically the reason that the official reason John was thrown in jail was because he was trying to usurp Herod's power. He was painted as this political uh, attacker of Herod when in actuality it was just because he spoke out against Herod and Herodias. But the official title was that he was a political threat. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Both are arrested under bogus charges. Neither of them argue or fight those charges. They just accept what God has orchestrated and stick to preaching the truth all the way until the end. Both of them are at the mercy of a ruler who doesn't have a spine or his own feet to stand on. John the Baptist has to answer to Herod, who is in actuality clearly being controlled by his wife Herodias. She's the one pulling the strings. She's the one really in control of her husband. And then beyond that, even his own ego and his own mouth when he makes this promise in front of all these men. Flash forward, not too very long into the future, is that Jesus will stand chained up, beaten up before Pontius Pilate, who also doesn't want to kill Jesus, right? I mean, if you read the Gospels, you read the, the Passion accounts, how many times does Pilate say to Jesus, say anything, tell me why you're here, tell me something that's going to keep me from having to have you killed. Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing to earn the death penalty, but because he was a spineless coward, he submitted to the will of the mob and the Pharisees and those wolves who were attacking Jesus. Both of them are executed. Why? Because they spoke truth. Because they preached the good news. Even in the face of religious and political rulers and leaders, they spoke what God had told them to. They spoke the good news of the gospel, of new life found in faith in Jesus. Even in death, John is beheaded and his disciples go and get his body and it says, laid him in a tomb. Not his tomb, not the specific tomb, a tomb. What we know about John the Baptist, he lived in the wilderness. He wore camel skins and ate honey and locusts. Probably didn't have money for a tomb. Probably didn't have any money. Jesus, when he was crucified, is taken off the cross and he's put into a tomb also that he didn't know. The Son of God was a carpenter from the middle of nowhere that traveled around, as best we know, didn't have his own home. And so he, when he died, was put into a tomb that he didn't know. And so both of them end up dead for preaching truth in somebody else's tomb. The big difference is that 
John stayed in his tomb. Jesus got up. Jesus lives. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated sin and death and hell. The death that held John in the grave that kept him there could not hold Jesus. John may have been great. Jesus, even we're going to hear Jesus talk about John in a couple of chapters and says that he is the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. John was great. But he wasn't God. He may have been the one to set the table to go ahead, but it is Christ who is greater. John himself knew, knows that. In another gospel, John says, I must decrease, he must increase. There is good news to be had here. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth to live a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled everything the law required, fulfilled everything that God required in perfection, everything we couldn't and wouldn't do on our own. He went to the cross on our behalf for our sin, in our place, and died so that we can live, so that we could have a new life, so that we could no longer be enemies against God, so that we can no longer be dead and trapped, but rather he gives us life. He gives us hope. He gives us wholeness. He gives us himself. God gave himself for us and to us. We are undeserving. We couldn't earn it, and that's grace. That's the love that God has. That's the gospel. John was a willing follower of Jesus, and in doing so, put his life on the line. To say that the word of God is living and active, it matters, it means something, it's real. John was willing to carry that out even to death. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is a serious, life-changing, big, weighty calling to anyone who would follow Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? And how does your answer affect your life? What are you doing to take steps to grow in your faith? If you say, I have no idea where to start, I don't know what to do, open the book. That's a great place to start. Pray. Just talk to God. There is no right formula on prayer. Just have a conversation. Ask God to show you where and how you can grow. Get into community with other people and connect with others and open your life with others. Share and connect with others and walk with them in this. This passage, this is a sobering text of scripture because ultimately the life of an innocent man was taken. Evil was committed because a man named Herod heard truth and refused to respond. We this morning are called to respond to the truth of scripture. We are called to respond to the good news of great joy of Scripture. The truth of who Jesus is, God in the flesh come to earth. The truth of what he came to do to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead and show his power and his authority. The truth of that power and authority. The love and grace offered to you this morning. Don't sit back. Don't just listen. Don't just read it, hear it, and not act on it. We are called to respond to this good news. And as you respond, God is with you and for you always. That same Holy Spirit that powered John, the same Holy Spirit that, that was in Christ, that same Holy Spirit that was in the disciples as they're out preaching and doing miracles, that same Holy Spirit is still here, alive today. And if you are a believer, you have complete access to that Holy Spirit. 
Do you live into that? Do you take advantage of that? Do you even realize that and what that entails? The truth is God came into earth to die on a cross for our sins, to raise from the dead, to give us new life. And that matters. That matters not just later, not just when we're on our deathbed. That matters here, now, today, in this moment. It is a life-changing, life-altering reality. It is the message of good news, of great joy, that there is life to be had, hope to be had in Jesus. How do you respond? Let's pray.